Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. You're listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the Parents Menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential. Hello, welcome back listeners. This is Daria Brown at Affect Autism. And this week I have with me Marilee Bergeson, who is a speech and language pathologist in San Marcos, California, just north of San Diego. Her work has been focused in early intervention and since her retirement, she's in private practice and consultation. She is a DIR expert trainer with both the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning and Perfectum, and has been in the DIR world since the early 1990s. That's Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model. Welcome, Marilee. It's nice to have you. Thank you so much, Daria. I am just so grateful to be able to spend this time with you. Thank you. Well, I invited you on the podcast after seeing your newsflash with ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, on WAA, which stands for Words Affect Action. And I thought it would be a great topic to bring up with our listeners, especially as a follow-up to the recent podcasts I did with Jolene Fernald, who's also a speech and language pathologist. You started off that newsflash by mentioning that in Dr. Stanley Greenspan's book, Building Healthy Minds, he suggests that we always combine our words or ideas with our affect or our expression of feelings and actions. And so that's words, action, affect, or wah. Yes, exactly. And <clears throat> You know, that's such an important foundational kind of thing. And I think when I heard Dr. Greenspan speak about that, it resonated with me um, immediately uh, because I feel, as I wrote about, that it's much more a way of being than a strategy. I think um, it's a way of inviting a child in and it's a way of highlighting yourself, your nonverbal affect cues, so that they can take them in and understand at a nonverbal level, which is so important. And I think as a speech therapist, I really learned over time how important it is for me to get into that wah state that I really value creating a space for the child where they feel safe and that they don't feel that I'm a threat. So if we just go back to our interpersonal neurobiology, I don't want to create a fight or flight kind of response. And I was um, at a Greenspan conference when I heard Stephen Porges first talk about that um, vagal nerve activation. And I think that really also colored how I am 
with children because I just did not want to be that to them. I did not want to have them be afraid of me or feel like because I was moving too fast or using too much affect or language that it was scaring them and that they weren't sure what to do. And so I always come in um, first, even before I think of wow, I think of um, just how I am. Um, one, because I'm so used to doing home visiting. So I have to take in where the parent and family is. And I need to um, really build my relationship with the parents so that we have trust um, and that I really follow their lead. That's how I start a session is where is the family? And we go from there because that's the parallel I want to create for them to do with their child. So um, it's, a, it's a very slowed down process. And I think that's one of the things I really learned in all of these years of DIR is that idea of slowing down and being fully present and how important, what an important part of our work that really is. Because I'm not only wanting the child to take me in, I'm needing to take in the family as well as the child and the context of their relationship. So slowing down helps me to do that and enables me to read the really, really subtle cues that a child may be giving that we might we could miss if we were either having our own agenda or moving too quickly or using too much language or questioning you miss what the child is really trying to tell you. And I think I've um, cultivated over time a great value in curiosity about who each child is and how are they really showing up and um, who are they? I want to know who they are and I want to be so there to support that. And so they can be who they are to their fullest extent and be an ally and supporter of that, um, which I think creates such a wonderful um, foundation in our work that really makes it so valuable and rewarding is to just get to know each child as they are. And uh, I just feel like creating this space is so important where, and it's really a nonverbal space because I really am trying to, I want the child to come to me and I want them to um, know that I am there appreciating them and appreciating their ideas and telling him that if I'm telling them things, it is really, oh, you really love sharks. Oh, you are, you know, what's your idea? That's a great idea. I love that. You know, and just trying to let them know I'm right there with them. Um, and I think that in the end, it just pays off to have a child come to you and um, initiate and want to play. But this can take a long time. It's a lot longer path to that kind of relating than, say, ABA, stimulus response kind of teaching in contrast. This is building a relationship that's based on creating safety, um, which is also being attuned and aware of regulation, both mine, the families, and the child, so we're in a calmer state so we can take each other in. It's so important to try to create that space because for me, often um, children, particularly on the autism spectrum, have motor planning issues, especially related to speech, and so sequencing those sounds can be really challenging. And it doesn't mean they are not really smart and have a lot of thoughts 
in their mind. It's there, but getting that out is more difficult. And so um, when you create this space of regulation and safety, that the child is more likely to try to make some sounds and try to say some words because they feel comfortable in doing so. And that there's not a lot of pressure for them to say a word or make a sound, but sometimes at the same time in that space, you can help support them through that. So it's this very nuanced dance that you uh, develop to try to find the balance between honoring the child and where they are and also encouraging them to make a sound um, and trying it because it's safe and they don't feel stressed out. And so they might try it. It doesn't mean we're going to do it 10 times. We might do it once and just say, yes, open, and then open whatever it is that they requested. And that sort of comes into this space once you've created that, where the words, actions, and affect come is that, you know, they're very um, curated to the child. So curated specifically to that child and also to the situation that you're in, because that's where the meaning comes in. That's how we bring language to life. It's not about labeling. It's about meaning and in a shared experience. So it's not just the child experience that we're experiencing this together. And that's where the joy and the affect comes. It's because we're both feeling it. And that's where the affect is. So if a child is saying open for the Play-Doh or something, and they say it and I do it, then we're like, wow, we're both so happy <laughs> that we got to open the Play-Doh and now we get to play with it. And so that creates meaning and it increases the likelihood that the child will say that word again, because we've created a context that's meaningful and that they have an idea of what to do then. It doesn't mean every time they're going to be able to do it, but we've set up a situation that is likely to be successful. And along those same lines in our play, if we did have Play-Doh, then you want to focus on the action words too, because they carry so much power and affect like squeeze. And so that's an example of wow, where you're actually adding affect to that word so that the child again is more likely to say it because they hear that kind of sing song affective tone in your voice. And so they kind of want to say that too, like squeeze, it's more fun. So you're adding another element that's coded differently too in the brain. It's a little bit more musicality. And so it creates an opportunity for a child to maybe be successful. And we're doing a sensory activity too, which also engages much more of their body and mind so that they also code that word in a sensory way too. Like, wow, not only am I hearing that squeeze, I'm feeling it. And so it has meaning and it's embedded in a different way in their brain. So you're talking about how do we get to integration of a concept like that? And then you may get into some other things that you're squeezing and pushing and poking and all of those kinds of things. So they start to understand the concept of that. Like, what does that actually mean? So that's how you build more depth to the words, the actions and affect, but it comes a lot from you and how you're 
just bringing more to it according to what the child is showing you. And it also helps support them in sharing attention and staying with you uh, because of it, because it's, um, you know, you get into that. It helps with the sharing of attention and the sharing of the emotion. And then it gets them to that place of intention. They want to show me or initiate or do it again. And they, in the context of that rhythm, then they're more, much more able to do that. Uh, and have a good experience of doing that. And I can't emphasize, you know, as a speech therapist, of course, the first request is always, I want my child to talk. And so I often talk, you know, I want that for your child as well. I certainly, that's my big priority too, but we have to go through the idea of regulation and being in a calm state as well as being in a place um, where you can just move through this process, um, this nonverbal reading of cues, so that you're regulated and we are relating with each other. And I often point out too for parents how important that is and how we need to, and when we're talking about safety, a really key part of safety, according you know, to Dan Siegel, um, is that you really, you know, as we're wired you know, we look at nonverbal cues and we're already reading if we feel a person is safe or not safe in the world. And so we want our kids to be able to do that because that's, will keep them safe and keep them out of harm's way. So it's a really, there's so much to it um, in terms of the reading of the cues and when they are playing with peers, when they're in school, the reading of the nonverbal cues, like knowing who to pay attention to, um, is really important because there is a lot of nonverbal cueing going on with peers as well as with teachers. And a child needs to be able to orient themselves to all those different things. So, um, and for sure, I want the parents to really be able to have that with their child because it's also a very intimate space. And I want them to have that depth of relating with their child and that closeness. Um, because that's where the child ultimately is going to learn how to relate to other people with the person that are the people that are most important to him or her. And so that's a really important piece too. Um, so we're putting the on the back burner, the talking in favor of the relating, because also we really want kids to have a wonderful quality of life and we want them to have friends and we want them to have relationships that they value. And so that's a really important priority as well as talking and academic kinds of things. Um, it's that relating piece, which is really so challenging um, at times uh, for kids, because especially on the autism spectrum, because it can be very in and out. They don't have a strong, solid signal all the time. And so they can miss like this flow I'm talking about. They can miss a lot of that because their bodies are filled with sensation that doesn't allow them to tune in to us so consistently. And so that's what we're trying to do is build that muscle and build the ability to share gaze, to sustain gaze to, that's why it's so important. It's not eye contact, it's gaze and that loving gaze and just really um, having a child take you in. And when you see that, it's just a beautiful, kind of thing. And when a child approaches you with that kind of affection, it's a really special 
kind of a thing. And um, to have these longer sequences of nonverbal dances in such a reciprocal way, it's a wonderful thing. And I feel for parents too, they feel that same thing. So to them, they're not putting as much of a priority on the talking because they're enjoying the relating, getting to know their child, seeing what their child can do and appreciate it. And so that becomes less of a priority. I mean, it's it's there, you know, we're always working toward that, but we're really building a strong foundation. So that's kind of what puts this all together. And it's that's why I wrote the um, article in the first place was just that I felt like you do this from the beginning and you're almost in a way mimicking, you know, the rhythm of mother ease when moms are talking to their babies and you're having a conversation with a child who's not verbal. So it's just taking that same idea and having a conversation. So it doesn't mean that I'm not talking because I am, but I'm taking whatever they are doing as intentional and I'm having the conversation about it. And so that's where the affect comes in and putting intention on it, whether the child has the intention or not, I'm trying to put it on there, but I'm doing it in a very conversational way, in a very sing-songy kind of voice too, <laughs> to keep them with me and to uh, try to get a flow going and to just let them know I'm here for you and I, I hear you. I, that's your idea because I'm trying to connect actually with what's up here <laughs> because I'm trying to guess based on what they're showing me what they're thinking so that I can give some voice to that. And I have often had kids just look at me like, yes, I can tell that I'm getting close to what they're thinking. And they're looking at me like, yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. But I couldn't say it. And so I think it's worth keep keeping to trying to work on that because I feel for kids, it's so nice to have someone understand what they're trying to communicate and uh, to just get it out there. And so I just feel that that has been such an important part of the work that I have done. Uh, and it took a long, you know, that's a big change from being a speech therapist where, you know, in the traditional training, it's very direct. <laughs> and so uh, I had a lot of learning to do uh, as a speech therapist, and that along with going into homes, that's a very different setting than a clinic setting. And so that's a whole nother um, set of um, skills and a way of being that I had to learn as well. So I didn't overwhelm everybody with too much information uh, or I don't take toys in or anything like that. I just go with what we have at home and, um, you know, I just follow the child and the parent and we just see where we end up. And it's really wonderful because I feel the parents take the ownership often of what, what they're going to do or where we're going to play or, you know, and um, that's just nice to see. I feel like I'm a guest in there and um, we just see where this takes us. Uh, so that's kind of the history of WAH in my own practice. And in also one of the things I've learned in terms of working with families is the importance of checking in and talking about celebrations as well as um, challenges. So every time in our session notes, when we kind of review the session, I ask the parent what was their favorite part what was the hardest part? And then what do they want to think about for next time? And so that is wonderful because often the what I might think is the best part 
and the parent thinks might be two completely different things. And uh, I like the question as a routine question, what was hardest? Because it just gets that out in the open, like when things didn't work as well or when it's a child is breaking down, melting down, or they aren't doing the same thing they did last week or whatever it might be, but it gets the parent a chance to, gives us a chance to talk about that. And then think, knowing that what we really liked and what was hard, then what do we want to think about for the next time? So it gives us a little bit of an idea of where we want to go. Uh, and I think that's important too, is so that I have an idea of where the family is. And so that I'm not, I just want to always keep very close to where they are in order to be successful. Uh, so those are sort of my big takeaways over the years and why I think that's so important um, to work on that nonverbal level, even with kids that are talkers it's really important to build that in because often they aren't really attuned in the same way. And so talking less really is what gets you more in a DIR floor time session is the waiting, the slowing things down and not talking as much because then the kids, even if they're talking, will start to listen and look because they've just gotten so used to the auditory channel. They haven't really tuned into this whole visual affective kind of channel that's going on as well. So wherever a child or young adult also, um, you know, with older individuals that I've worked with too, that's, it's just a really important kind of thing because it helps everyone to regulate and be present and then be more effective. Yeah, it, you brought up so many good points. Um, I think I could put links back to dozens of podcasts I've done where other DIR experts echoed all of the same things that you said in different ways. And, and that's why I love interviewing different people all the time, because you get a different perspective on all these aspects of DIR coming in. And the more people listen to different people speak about it, something resonates with them that didn't resonate before. And they say, Oh, now I get it. And I know I've had those light bulbs uh, come off over the years as I've learned more and more about the bottle. Um, you really echoed what uh, Millie Cordero and her daughter Joanne said in a podcast a couple of weeks ago about really going from this idea of, you know, Millie talked about one of her very first clients years and years ago, where she had this whole program planned, and she brought it in and the mother patiently listened and looked and then said, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And Millie was just like, you know, after she had done all of that work, the mother said, no way I can do this. I have other kids. It, it sounds great, but it, no parent, when you have kids of your own, you'll understand. And she said that really helped her, helped shape her career about meeting the family where they're at. And that's one of the first points you brought. Her daughter mentioned working with an autistic child when she took a year off school and how it was all about making it about her. And until she was able to connect with the child and really make it about the child and meeting the child where they're at, then all of a sudden the light bulbs went off and she had that connection. And that's another point you brought up. Um, in, in my ICDL presentation that I did in November, and I think I saw you there in the audience, <laughs> um, my, yeah. I showed yeah. a video of my son and I in the car waiting for data one day. And we were playing with the Kleenex box. So I had, you know, the little 
um, compartment area or whatever with a Kleenex box on it beside me in between the driver and passenger seat. And he's in the back in his car seat and he loved kicking the Kleenex box. And we were doing a little floor time game and the Kleenex box fell and I was like, whoa. And, you know, I was saying, oh, you flipped it over. And he's like, ha, 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 ha. And I made the point that if I had just sat there and taught him what is flip over, I mean, that's one of those action word words that you mentioned. It might not be one of the most common ones that people would teach, but he had so much fun and there was so much affect and that shared joy that you mentioned, um, kicking it and watching it flip that in a later video where we did the same game, he's the one who initiated, I want to flip it over. And he remembered that because it was that words with affect and action. And I know that my son who now just turned 12, he always remembers the words that have affect associated with it. And I think I brought up before that, you know, we, we went to model train shows, model train houses, model train layouts, you know, for years and years and years until COVID. And he's excited to get back on the circuit again when we open up here um, in Ontario. But he remembered, you know, when the model train guys who are, you know, not necessarily uh, super excitable using a lot of affect unless something happens. So the trains would inevitably derail when they have, you know, they're on display, they're on a layout tour, they're on display, proud to show everybody their layouts and the trains don't work and they get frustrated. And the guy says, oh, come on. And my son repeated that for like a year or more. And he still to this day, every now and then when something doesn't work out, he'll say, oh, come on. And he'll look at me and like start laughing. So he knows what context <laughs> it goes in. And it was so funny to him. So on the whole ride home, I think that was in Ottawa. So that's a four or five hour drive from here on the whole ride home. He was laughing and saying, oh, come on and laughing his head off. He just thought that was great. <laughs> so it, it's really what helps teach our children language is that affect. And like you said, connecting the word with the action, with the affect. And so, um, so many good points you brought up there. And the other big one you brought up was uh, more along the lines of what we talked about Millie and Joanne mentioning about meeting the child where they're at. And of course now neurodiversity is, is up in front in, in our approach and what we're trying to um, understand about from self-advocates who are starting to have a lot of voice ever since um, Steven Silberman's book, Neurotribes. And we're hearing from so many self-advocates about experiences. And then we had Damian Milton come out with the double empathy study where he showed that neurotypicals and neurotypicals communicate and understand each other and autistics and autistics have communication styles that they understand each other but it's that mix and match that's the trouble and we want to move away from this we know the way to communicate and you guys are wrong and we're teaching you to what you said which is we have to do it's it's a reciprocal action so we're not expecting the child to come to us, we are going to the child in order to show them that it's safe to communicate and we want to help you to be able to communicate. And this is a safe way to do it. And then they'll meet us there as well. And then because they're the child and we're, we're the, or not me, but you guys who are the clinicians um, are the ones that are, 
you know, older, your, your professionals, your experience, your, it's your responsibility to meet the child where they're at, not the way some other um, approaches have traditionally in the past looked at it, whereas I need to teach you what to do, and you need to do it my way. So I, I think all of those points were loud and clear in what you said, and just that this whole topic that that um, Jolene emphasized that relating is this pivotal foundation for communication, as you put it in your newsflash. It's it's really about being able to relate, and you gave all the reasons of how you make that possible to relate to someone, and that whole piece of mm-hmm. shared meaning, and um, yeah. 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 It's a lot. And it's a very rich experience and it's also a very human experience. And so I think that's also important to keep in mind and just also how much fun you have uh, by following a child's interest. And just with a Kleenex box, you created a whole different situation and game you never would have known existed. And so I think there's also a whole shared world of fun based on that. Uh, Just... (laughs) different experiences or what, what a child might be interested in. And uh, that takes you down another path and makes us really more childlike ourselves. I think when we don't have an agenda and you just kind of go with it, then you're right there with them. And I know they can feel that. Yeah. And it makes me think of another thing you wrote about in your newsflash that maybe you can describe for us, which is you called it dual coding. So you said, in other Mm -hmm. words, um, I'm going to quote you from the newsflash and I'll put a link to the newsflash in the blog post at affectautism.com for today's podcast. Our desires activate our sensory system, emotional system, motor system, and communication system and move us through development to achieve these, to achieve our goals. These signals connect comprehension to affect and create meaning within the context of shared experiences. So, how following a child's desire draws them in and anchoring our attention together in a shared experience. Um, Did you want to say anything more about that? I I had never, um, I might have heard it before, but I I didn't remember off the top of my head that term dual coding. Well, it's a really pivotal part of uh, the DIR model. Um, And I think that the whole premise of that is that we learn what we care about. And so, you know, just an example of that would be, you know, Simone Biles or, you know, she learned a lot about gymnastics. She cares a lot about that. And she's very successful in that. But that's true for all of us, that if we're interested in something, then we are going to learn and we're going to be affectively invested in it. And not only that you engage your whole system much more so if you are uh, just learning something. And I think the dual coding also comes in terms of relationships too, because of course we care about those we love and um, that really um, creates a whole nother uh, set of expectations and um, how we relate and show our love to one another. And so that's also a part of it. But the dual coding is that that's why the following the child's lead and their intent is so important because we want them to be more activated in their you know bodies and minds to do what they want to do because they're going to get a much better experience. They're going to get a much better, you know, neurological experience and um, affect experience and relational experience. 
experience um, and have more success. But it's really pivotal because it's it's also very human, that whole idea of dual coding. And that's really such an important foundation and one of the reasons why we follow a child's interests and see where that takes us because and they may hold it like your son may love trains he may hold that interest his whole life he may just be totally that may be his thing so awesome you know that that's kids have interests and it doesn't mean it's it's a bad thing it's awesome that you know or this one little guy that i work with is adores sea life and sharks and he um is nonverbal and he's four and i've worked with him for a few years but he can draw out amazing things he can draw sea life and it looks like you might think it's doodles but after you start looking at it you're thinking oh my gosh he's drawing all the fish under the water and you could see his evolution of how he was learning how he was in his mind he had ideas and one of the ways he could show us was by drawing and so you could say oh my gosh he's so you know just taken with sharks that he's not paying attention to anything else but he's elaborating it and he's actually going with so much more of that idea and so could we um in playing with him to expand it and you know do all things sharks and fish and all of those kinds of things but he showed us what he had in mind and it would be easy to take the sharks away <laughs> but um, you know, and but what it is an indicator of too, and how that changed, it went from a sensory kind of play and a calming and organizing kind of play for him into ideas and into his mind. And then he was able to share that. So, um, you know, you just never know. So I'm never too quick to uh, <laughs> make a judgment about those things when kids are interests. I think that's fantastic that they have interests and they started in play you start at the sensory motor level and that's what he was doing so and that was for him very calming and organizing for him so uh, that's where he was at that time because he was not very regulated so that's what he needed to do to help organize himself so he was just beginning that but that it's just interesting to see over time how that evolves and that idea of dual coding and um you know, following an interest where it can go can create professions, uh, you know, that people are interested in. So it's really something to pay attention to. And how cruel to take away a child's number one interest and think, oh, they're too obsessed mm -hmm. with this. They need to learn something else. Would we do that with neurotypical children? I mean, maybe some people do, but I wouldn't want to do it with anybody. Uh, take away what they love to teach them other things instead that love is a vehicle to teach them other things. And I, I have a great example yeah. of that from this week. It, you're going <laughs> to laugh at this. Um, my son um, is at his program and it's starting to get really hot here. And the UV factor or whatever, they said, send in some spray suntan lotion, please. So because we want to play outside. So I, I sent it in and I heard back that he absolutely wanted nothing to do with it. And somehow the TA was um, bright enough, uh, tuned enough to understand that my son currently is obsessed with Mario Kart. He loves everything Mario Kart. He learned how to play video games during the pandemic. And so she said something along the lines of, oh, well, we need to put the spray on to protect the Mario Kart cars from the sun. And he literally laid down and let her spray his entire body. 
And it was just so interesting to me because of course our children have lots of sensory challenges and and are overwhelmed by different sensations and it can be so easy to say you know the feeling of the suntan lotion on his skin bothered him so much um he's scared that you're hurting him he's and we can make up all these kinds of sensory reasons why it's overwhelming to put on suntan lotion and for a lot of kids that is a fact and that's true i don't want to diminish that in any way and for my son, maybe it also is true because he doesn't like getting stuff on his hands. He's like, oh, oh. even though he's a sensation seeker, he's very uh, defensive with the tactile sense in some ways. But going through something he loves and relating it to that made him totally okay with it. And it just shows the power of this um, approach being child-led and what that means. Follow the child's lead. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, you know, just going with what they love as the vehicle for getting the rest of this out there. So I, I just thought, you know, guys, you guys better hire that TA cause she gets it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that's a great story too. I just think, think that we can't always assume we need to be curious about where a child is coming from and why and see where that takes us because we don't always know. Again, that's reading the child's cues and just tuning into their interest and who would ever have imagined? <laughs> that's such a great idea. Who would ever imagined that uh, that's how you would get <laughs> sunscreen on a child? But that's awesome. You know, that's that's just great. That's a good example of that. You know, how it unlocks a lot of things that you could never imagine. So I think it's a, and I think it's also helpful for parents to have that openness to their child too, and not the worry and to try to just go there with their child and see where it takes them. And it's always trial and error. It's always a dance. Uh, You think something will work and it might for a while, and then it doesn't anymore. And you think something works and it doesn't work and you try something else. And it's, it's always that. Um, But I, I guess the way that she said it was non-threatening enough. Like you could also have said, you need to put it on, otherwise your car is going to blah, blah, blah. And that would have been scary and he wouldn't have wanted to, but she said it very yeah. nonchalantly and, and it was fine. And uh, the other thing I wanted to point out that we didn't about that Kleenex box example where my son was kicking the Kleenex box and we're saying flipped over. It wasn't just um, just this, this uh verbal and affect relation like it was the sensory experience too and like you mentioned adding in a sensory experience and movement so he got to kick like he his um he needs to move he's a mover and a shaker that vestibular uh input and and even proprioceptive input from you know kicking and and the visual watching it flip and all of those things coming into play with that kleenex box game even though he's sitting he's sedentary but just moving it, uh, moving his foot and, and feeling that kick and then me being able to put it back. So bringing in the sensory uh, is so important too. I like how you said that as opposed to the first speech pathologist experience that my son had, which was sitting at a little table at age two with a seatbelt on and you know being shown things and drilled. No, it didn't sit well with me. Um, and you know it's so different to let the child do what understand and respect what they love and what is fun to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think as the speech therapist, you have to be uh, open to that and open to, like you said, the ups and downs, some things work, sometimes they don't. 
And that you have to be open to that as the speech therapist. And, and also to bring meaning to that to the family, like what is happening? What do you see happening? And um, help us, let's try to understand this together. But you, that takes a certain amount as the therapist too, of just being okay with whatever, a meltdown and you're in someone else's home. And this is their child too. So I think that's just another dynamic is being comfortable with all of that um, because that helps build your relationship with the family, but you're there together and you're trying to work through it together and try to make meaning from that situation and learn from it. So I think that's also really important. And that's not something you learn in speech therapy school. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, but I believe you because I've never been in speech therapy school. But yeah, I hear it. Um, I hear it from a lot of people. Um, one last point I wanted to cover before we sign off, you mentioned in the the news flash, babies feel before they think. And um, we're kind of wrapping it right back around to the beginning about why this is all so important and just tying in this observation that that everybody knows intuitively babies feel before they're starting to think about things did you want to elaborate a little bit on that yeah absolutely and i think it's a great example to think about because that's how we tune into babies that's how we know if something we did worked or if it didn't work or if they're uncomfortable or that's their communication, that's, but they're getting it purely from the sensation in the body. And you see that connection between the emotion and sensation just right there. And then it connects to you as the parent trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> so I think it's not that different from kids we work with too. It's, it's very similar kind of situation. I think with the babies, we know they can't talk. And so that we're tuning into the nonverbal cues, I think more <laughs> intently and desperately trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with a baby. Uh, but it's similar, you know, in trying to figure out um, with a child and getting to know them, what do those things mean, especially when they're distressed and what are they experiencing? You know, that that's, they're not feeling safe, they're in a state of distress. So how do we help support them in that? But yeah, that's that's just getting right down to the basics when you're talking about babies, but then you're talking about how we're wired from the beginning and how we're wired to be in relationship because a baby needs their parents to survive. So we are wired for relating from day one. And I will put a link in the podcast to uh, the podcast I did with Colette Ryan about cue reading because we go into that in more depth. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much, Marilee. It It's so great to go over this concept of WAA. It's words, <laughs> yeah. affect, action, and how powerful it is and how it really brings out some of the more important aspects of this approach, developmental individual differences, relationship-based model. So I appreciate it, listeners. Uh, Go to affectautism.com and you'll find the, the blog slash podcast link that'll bring you to Words Affect Action. Um, and I will put links to some of the past podcasts we mentioned. And uh, thanks again, Mary Lee. And hopefully we'll speak again in the future about topics like this. I certainly hope so. It was a pleasure, Daria. Thank you so much for asking me. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by affectautism.com. 
This is an independent endeavor on my part without any sponsorship. Please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash affectautism. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.